Welcome to Midwifing the Story, the Art of Editing. Um, I'd like to start with just giving credit for the title of this panel to my friend and colleague, Julie Kane, who was one of the editors of this session. So in a very meta way, this whole session came about like a radio story does. We're talking through ideas and then getting feedback from people who I admire and who are editors. And so in, in an iterative process. Um, and just to talk a little bit about where the idea for this session came from, Julie and Casey Miner, myself and Leela Day, were just have been thinking about this lack of editors, this editor shortage that people have talked about in our industry for years, and especially thinking about the lack of women and people of color in editorial positions. And so we want to create more opportunities for training and for sort of bringing people into these roles that have a lot of decision-making power in the field. And so the my kind of aim with this panel is to just talk about how cool and fun and creative and fulfilling a job being an audio editor can be. Um, and then also to just clarify, I'm talking about um, story editing and mainly going to be talking about narrative audio journalism. But a lot of things I'm talking about can apply to other other formats or other, other things. So I'm going to start with a piece of audio. I wanted to bring a lot of other voices into the room with me because there are a lot of really brilliant editors out there. And so I put a call out to some editors that I know. I asked them like a series of prompts about editing. So you'll hear some of the tape from them as we go along. So this is Catherine St. Louis, who's here also at the conference from Neon Hum. And she was answering one of my prompts. Can anyone be an editor? And the answer is sort of yes and no. I'm not sure editing is for everyone, but I do feel like if you rarely listen to anything without wanting to deconstruct why it worked or why it definitely sucked, then you're probably an editor. I think a lot of people interested in radio want to be in the tape or want to be in the field, meet people, be out there. So they lean towards becoming a producer. I think it's sad that fewer people want to become editors. Me? I'm like a mechanic. I want to take an audio piece apart and figure it out. That's how I got into this. I was at the New York Times writing and reporting health stories, but spending more and more of my free time listening to podcasts and mapping out their structure. I fell down a rabbit hole. There's some episodes I've listened to nine times. Nine times. Nine times. <laughs> Things that she wasn't even working on. <laughs> Um, okay, so we're going to go into talking about the creative process, and I'm going to talk about this like kind of in a more meta way first, and then a little later we'll get into kind of the nitty-gritty details of audio editing. But first, the creative process, a.k.a. help. I don't want to belabor our metaphor here too much, but I did want to talk a bit about um, why midwifing, when Julie Kane first said that to me, that was how she thought about editing, I was just like, that is exactly how I think about it too. And it has to do with, with this, with the process of birth and especially that sort of ending time where the baby's about to come out. Um, but of course the whole process, you know, begins way before this and it continues on after this. But I think this is really analogous to the slides that I just showed this sort of like, you enter into a period of great effort and you think you can do it and you then get really, really stressed and you think that you can't do it and it feels impossible and you like forget 
why you were doing this in the first place. If anyone in here has given birth or has attended a birth, like there's a moment where uh, the birthing person says, I fucking can't fucking do this. And then they do it. You know, if you're lucky, um, at your healthy baby arrives into the world and somehow you make it through. Midwives, doulas, birth helpers, partners, the people who are there attending during that process are there to help you through. And that's really how I think about editing. I'm there to help ensure a healthy baby. I care about the, the person who's giving birth as well, but really the goal is to get that story out. <laughs> So I'm going to listen to a little bit more tape. Um, this is a montage of Allison McAdam, Catherine St. Louis again, and Stephanie Fu, who um, has worked on Snap Judgment and This American Life and a lot of other stuff. So let's listen. I love the challenge of trying to make my colleagues feel comfortable, um, not just comfortable in a calm, happy way, but comfortable in a challenging situation where we all have to struggle through a story that we're trying to tell and we have to trust each other and um, be a little vulnerable. I hope that the writer feels that I'm in the trenches with him and that we have the same goal to make the story better. My mantra is put your ego aside. The story is the thing. So I'm the kind of person who, if I feel like you're on my side and, you know, you like me and you're out here trying to protect me, I will do anything for you. Like, I will work my ass off. I will do anything for the people who I care about, essentially. Um, and so that's kind of the most important thing to me about being a good editor is creating this relationship where it's clear that you really care about them and their work so they care about you and doing good work so i want to move on to talking a bit about some bigger picture concepts around editing and how i think about it so i'm calling this section editor dialectics so the idea of um, attention or opposition between two interacting forces or elements like yin and yang or push and pull this idea that you're balancing different modes when you are in an editing process and the first one being tape and script this is like kind of the basic toggle that you're doing as an editor um, we make audio so obviously we're listening to stuff a lot listening for things like flow and rhythm. Is this confusing? Is this boring? Is this exciting? Does this make me feel something physically? Is this going on too long? What does it sound like? What does it feel like? What are the you know sonic components of something? And then there's the level of script. So a lot of people work in script. You can't work in audio without working in audio. <laughs> But you can work in audio without working in script. I'm a big believer in working with scripts if there's any sort of talking going on because you can really see things visually laid out in a way that you can't 
when you're in an audio editing software or in the past, you know, looking at a piece of tape. So you can really see the structure of a thing. You can see how it's constructed. You can start to deal with things like fact checking and accuracy, precision of language, like rewriting sentences, getting, I love all that really, really fine detail work. Um, you can move things around more easily when you're in a script. So if you are like, you know, this piece has these, uh, like, let's say it has three sections, you, it can be hard to figure out how to do that and then listen to it if you're working in your software. But in a script, you can kind of preview things, like just cut and paste these like three pages and stick them up here and then quickly scan it and see, does that work? Um, you can really break things down. Again, like you can like start to copy paste and pull things into different documents or pull things in from other places, from your transcripts. I really like to work from like having, even as an editor, I like to look at raw transcripts. I like to listen to raw tape too. Not every editor works that way, but I, I like being able to get in there and help solve problems sometimes by like, we need something here. Uh, we don't know what it is. The producer may not always remember all of the tape, or they might not really be in the same mindset that I am when I'm like, we need this thing. So I'll just go in and I might scan the transcript and then like pull a few options into the script. So things like that are really useful, but you kind of have to go between. Both of them are equally useful depending on the phase that you're in or the moment that you're in. So the second dialectic I want to talk about is between listening and talking. So obviously, as an editor, you're listening to tape, but you're also listening to your reporter or producer that you're working with. You're really um, trying to find out what it is that they want out of the story. What are they trying to do? Um, what do they need? Sometimes it is being a shoulder to cry on. Sometimes it's they need, um, you know, they need someone to help keep them accountable to deadlines. Um, you want to listen really to like, yeah, what they need and therefore what the story needs. On the other hand, as an editor, you also have an active role of saying what your thoughts are, what your opinions are. A lot of the talking, especially at the beginning, is going to be about asking questions. I really think as an editor, and I think editors in general, I think there's a misconception that um, editors are smarter or better at making stories. And I don't think that's true at all. Like, I don't, I don't know the subject. I don't know the reporting, you know, anywhere near as well as the reporter or producer does, but I'm just playing a particular role, playing a particular function in the story making process. And maybe I've had a lot more experience, but you don't have to have more experience than the person you're editing to be a good editor to them because it's not about again it's not about what you're it's not about like an increase in knowledge that you have it's just a different role so asking questions is super important you don't know the answers sometimes you have an answer in mind and you say it and sometimes the talking is just about trying to find out more um, a big part of that for me is surfacing blind spots so thinking about um, like asking questions about where the reporter is coming from, trying to ask questions about what assumptions they're coming to the story with, asking myself what assumptions I'm coming to the story with, and trying to just dig into what's behind that. Like we're all products of our environment and our upbringing. So um, I think it's the job of the editor to be looking for all of those things that we might be missing. 
um, on any side of a story. Giving opinions, advice, and then sometimes ultimatums. Like I had to put my foot down a bit recently about one line that I really did not think belonged in a story. And I was working with a reporter producer team that really thought that line belonged in the story. And it just, I was like, no, like, but no, but like maybe there's something else that, you know, we could save that you want that, but I, you know, no. <laughs> so sometimes the buck stops with you. I think about editing as a spiritual practice, and that's just my own kind of viewpoint in the world and how I approach things. The same thing with this central metaphor of this whole session. If it doesn't work for you, that's totally fine. But just to sort of, it helps me think about this particular aspect of editing, which I think is so important. So I call it practicing imaginative empathy, that when you are listening to a story, evaluating a story that you're really trying to stand inside someone else's perspective. A lot of what an editor does is kind of become a proxy for the listener at the same time as being an advocate for the reporter. So an advocate for the reporter's hopes and dreams for the stories and their intentions and like sort of keeping that on track. But you're also there to not be the reporter, to be like, um, you know, if somebody had no idea, you know, if, if somebody doesn't have all the knowledge that you have, how is this going to hit them? If someone has a completely different background than you do, how is this going to hit them? If you believe strongly in whatever the argument of your piece is, but what about someone on the opposite uh, side of the spectrum from you? I think it's also about standing in the place of the sources or the subjects in a story. So, you know, sometimes a reporter, producer, perhaps this has happened to you, you kind of like fall in love with your subject as the symbol of something in your piece. And like, they just become that for you, even if like you are the one that sat down and talked to them and you got to know them, but they sort of become cemented in your mind as a particular thing. Sometimes the editor can help you kind of expand that notion and remember the complexities of people that they're not just, this happens a lot at, um, with investigative work. We're sort of looking at, there's this idea of the perfect victim, the person who is go whose story and life is going to illustrate the harm that you wanna talk about. And it is a really useful thing for storytelling to find that person who really does, you know, check all your boxes. At the same time, you have to remember that they're not just those boxes that you assign to them. There's a whole lot else. So I think about that as my responsibility too, in a different way than the reporter producer has their responsibility with their subjects. Uh, I think that's enough about engagement. <laughs> uh, and then I think the flip side of that is detachment, is being able to let go of any particular one of those perspectives at any point, and then being able to see, again, like sort of zooming in and then zooming out to see what is the story need, what is the big picture here. So we've kind of looked at it from all these different angles and now we sort of like go up and see, does this still align with the reporter's vision at the beginning? How, how will this hit the broadest amount of people and how can we accomplish what we wanna accomplish with the greatest amount of people? Because I think for most people, you want your story to reach as many people as possible. And how do we accomplish that? Um, ambition versus curiosity. That's the last one we'll talk about. Um, so ambition being both personal ambition, and this is uh, one of the not 
great parts of being an editor is that it's not the glamorous role in the process. It's not the sexy part. Your voice isn't necessarily going to be on the air. Sometimes your name doesn't get on it. Sometimes you work super hard on something and it wins an award and nobody knows that you did 80% of the work, let's say, um, for example. I mean, it's not always like that. It's often like a beautiful collaboration and you're right there in all the ways, but that's just real. Um, and so thinking about being really aware of what your personal ambitions are, both in terms of that, like the career glory and all of that, but even like what your ambitions for a story might be. Like sometimes I get excited about somebody's pitch and I realize that it's become a different story in my mind. It's become the story I would make out of it. And being able to separate that from the story that they want to make out of it, you can kind of merge those things. But there's the danger of becoming like, okay, we're going to make it my story. Because it's not really. Like, ultimately, it's their baby. <laughs> it's a funny gesture. Um, so, yeah. So it's not always that you don't. You, it's not that you shouldn't have ambition, it's that you want to practice an awareness about that ambition. And sometimes suggesting bold changes to someone's vision is the right move. Sometimes it is not. The flip side of that being curiosity, maintaining your curiosity about what it was and what it is that the reporter producer wants out of the thing. Um, maintaining your curiosity about what the story can be so not getting too stuck in the vision in any creative process, things can evolve. Sometimes you think the story is going to be one thing. And then as you go along in reporting or in, in thinking about it, it's like, actually, it wasn't about Bob at all. It's really about the system that Bob exists in. Or it's not really about the system at all. Bob's life story is amazing. So now this whole thing is just a profile of Bob. And so being able to remain curious about what the kind of best iteration of the story is. Um, remaining curious about who or what has been left out of the story. So again, like what are the blind spots and whose perspective have we not considered or kind of taking the devil's advocate counter argument for a while and saying, well, what if you believed this? What if your fundamental assumption was different? How then would the story play out? This also has to do with ego, like being being able to let go and ask other people for opinions. So arranging for that group edit or asking your reporter producer to go like share this idea with like four different people and come back with some outside ears. Because when you get really wrapped up in something, especially something that's like a long running project, you kind of you lose perspective. And part of the job of the editor is to try to maintain perspective. But you have to be aware when you've lost it, you've gotten too, too inside, and when to sort of call in for outside help. I guess that's like when the midwife takes you to the hospital. <laughs> um, all right, so we're going to get into some of the real, like sort of nuts and bolts. This whole thing is a cycle, like the stages of grief, how they talk about that, that they're not they don't necessarily appear in a linear order. They often do, but they don't have to. Sometimes there's multiple stages happening at once. Um, sometimes one stage will last for a very long time. Sometimes they'll cycle between back and forth between one and the other, back and forth. But um, for me, this is kind of like the, the skeleton of what we do as editors. So setting up at the beginning, um, and we're going to 
dive deeply into each of these in just a moment, but setting up, checking in along the way, making sure everything's going well or seeing if they're not going well. Structure, really trying to figure out like what is this thing and how do we put it together. Moral support, it's a big one. Um, it's being in that helper mode, like what do you need? What does the story need? But what do you need as the creator, as the generator of the work? Reviewing. Reviewing and feedback are kind of like, they are separable, but they're very much go together. So reviewing, listening, or reading the thing, and then giving your thoughts on it. So first, setting it up, defining the relationship. So that can mean anything from um, like, if you're working, if you work for, if you're an editor for an outlet and a freelancer is coming to you with a pitch, just letting them know, here are all our protocols, here's how we work, here's what is expected of you, um, what can you expect from me? It can be kind of a more personal or customized version of that, like here's how I work as an editor, here are my weak points as an editor, um, here are my strong points, like how do you like to be edited, what has gone well for you in the past, what hasn't gone well for you in the past, and then kind of setting up your expectations at the beginning talking out an idea or refining a pitch. Again, that can happen at any time, but especially at the beginning, it's really useful as you're setting off uh, and then making a reporting plan, which could be written down or doesn't have to be, but I find it's often really useful to write down. So that would be like, these are all the people that I'm going to talk to. Um, these are the people that I know I have access to. These are the people I'm looking for. These are the scenes that I want to include in the piece. Um, this is where I have to go to get them. Um, this is the budget that I need to be able to go and get these things. Here's the... Uh, here's like my hypothesis, let's say, where I think the story is going to go. This could also include like my fantasy outline for this story is that we start in, uh, we start on the boat and then we go to the house and then we finish in the graveyard and um, like laying all that out beforehand. So you have a map of where you're going. It doesn't mean you have to stick to it, but uh, it's, it's really nice to have someone there to help you make that map. That's what an editor could do. And in giant... All caps, setting deadlines. So it's a giant, uh, a big part of it. So um, yeah, conceptually making a reporting plan. Like I said, it could be written down. It could be like a very strict format for it. Or it can be just like, okay, I know what you're doing. You know what we're doing. And we've agreed on it. Now go out and do it. I think it's always good to have someone kind of check your plan before you go out and execute it. I guess that's the, the main goal of that step. <laughs> Because what if you're like, I want to talk to, you know, these four people and your editor's like, uh, they all passed away last year. <laughs> like, good to have that double check. Setting deadlines. Um, if you don't have like an air date or a time it has to go out, at least make one up for yourself so the thing gets finished and let your editor help you, keep you accountable. Um, I think it's sort of like, I don't know, when you set your alarm early to keep yourself accountable, it doesn't really work. But like if someone calls you and, or if your mom comes in the room and says like, wake up, the outside force is can really actually make the thing happen. So check-in. This is a ongoing, but especially during the reporting process, kind of in between initial planning and then getting to a first draft or script. Um, it's a time the editor's not like really on, 
not not super in it, but it's really important to be checking in along the way because this is also where people can kind of get lost or people can lose their sense of direction sometimes during this phase. Um, having a written reporting plan can be helpful just to have something to keep everybody accountable to. Remember you said you were going to go to this town and get the tape of this carnival that happens. Did you do that? <laughs> it won't happen again until next year. So did you plan to do that? Um, gut checks, like a about uh, sometimes, um, again, like about blind spots or about the hypothesis or like arguments that you're making in the story, like just checking in. Is that still, is what you thought was happening, happening? Um, is this phenomenon that you thought you'd identified, is that a real thing? Um, is the person that you thought had this role in the story, is that really how it is? And if it's not, then like, let's think about what that means for the, like, the big picture of the story. Being a compass, <laughs> being a lighthouse, being a cheerleader, these are all things that people might need along the way as they go through their reporting and gathering tape. Um, I love to listen to tape as it comes in. Sometimes I'll ask people to just send me their raw, and I'll just, like, I'm not going to listen to the whole thing, but I want to hear, like, this person that you told me all about, what do they actually sound like? And so then I'm kind of like, pre-editing because already I'm like, this guy's voice is so boring. We definitely, if you, you know, if you turn in your script to me and he's on five pages, I'm gonna be like, no, 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 no. You know, automatically I'm already planning ahead for, you know, what I might see later. Here is um, another person talking about this stage. What I love about editing is reminding producers what they loved about their story when they set out to do it and then bringing their story back around to that initial spark, whatever it was they loved about the story, before the story fell apart and destroyed their hope. For me, editing is a lot about delivering hope for panicking producers. That's Anna Sussman from Snap Judgment and um, the UCBJ school, UC Berkeley J School. All right, so structure. Once the person has a critical mass of raw material, then comes this horrible, scary stage of like, well, what do I do with all of this stuff? Starting to think about what goes in and what goes out. And all of these decisions that you make are, you know, malleable until you put it out. And sometimes even after people do different versions of things. But so what's what goes in this? Um, what's the North Star? What's the focus statement? What is the value proposition? I love the, the folks from Believed talked about a value proposition for every episode that they made. I don't know if any of you or all of you have heard it, but listen to it if you haven't. It's really brilliant. Um, but I love this, this idea of the value proposition. What is the audience going to get? What is a listener going to get out of this if they listen to it? What value can it add to their lives? So I like that a lot. It doesn't work for every story, but I thought that was very cool. Um, what are your organizing principles? Is this story going to unfold just chronologically? We're going to tell this thing. It happened already, so we're just going to go top to bottom or bottom to top. Or is it that, okay, we're going to start in the middle, then we're going to flash back and then go you know, beginning to end. Or maybe your organizing principle is like, this thing is told from our friend Bob. We're going to start with Bob, then we're going to move to um, Corva, and then we're going to go to 
elephant. Um, but so it could be like we're structuring it by characters. It could be we're structuring it by chronology. It could be concepts. We're going to talk first about people who think this idea is awesome. And then we're going to do the flip side, people who think this idea is terrible. And then we're going to explain why neither of those is true. So there's like so many different ways that you can structure something. Um, before, during, and after you're actually putting the pieces together, it can be really useful to think about what's like my big picture organizing principle for this. And then making it into an outline that can be super useful. A lot of people don't work from outlines, but I think it's, it's just like a great way to go. The outline might change even as you're writing it, but at least you have a map so you're not just staring at the blank page, which is terrifying. And then thinking about what's the best format for that. So it could be just like straight up bullet points. It could be, um, well, I'll show you actually visual examples. So let's just listen to my friend and colleague, Casey Miner especially when I'm working for a long time with a reporter on a piece without a lot of other input. I am very aware of the fact that not only am I the audience's ears, but I, I'm also kind of their bullshit detector. There, there's just so many ways that the editor has to be kind of the final stop. I hesitate to say that I loathe that part of editing, but I, I do fear it and I am aware of it. And I think it's something it's something I try to take really seriously. But like it's certainly not the fun part. The fun part of editing is the collaboration and the story mapping and the imagining of what the piece could be and the moving things around so that it flows just right and feeling like you're really creating something together with the producer or the reporter. It is fun. So I'll just show a couple of different examples of formats for outlines. There's many. Here's just like a straight up bullet points. So this is um, an old story I made. One sentence really, or a few, not even sentences, fragments. Like this would go in the lead and then here's some songs and then these things happen and these people talk. So just not even like an outline. Some people, I have worked with reporters who like to do like the outline format that you might have learned in school with Roman numerals and a lot of tabbing over. If that works for your brain, that's wonderful. It's like I would never write an outline like that, but I'm happy to work with any reporter with an outline format that works for them. It's more important for it to work for them because they're the ones who have to write from it than it is for it to make sense to me. Here are post-its. Now this one is interesting because this was actually... Um, not at the beginning of a process, but this was maybe two drafts into a like 20-ish minute story where I just could not figure out something wasn't working with our structure. And we had already tried, yeah, like two or three different versions of the structure. And I was like, I cannot figure this out. So let me listen to the story. And as I'm listening, I'm writing the post-its and putting them there. And then I sort of like rearranged them on the table. Um, so this can this can happen at the beginning of your structure process, or it can happen in the middle. For I love post-its a lot. Sometimes I'll use like many colors, but for this particular version, I think that the purple ones were like kind of the big picture marquee, uh, like tent tent poles where we were going, and then the white stuff is like what the content actually is along the way, which could include um, uh, like actual people's voices or like here's where we have to talk about this law and here's how where we bring in the thing about these other states and blah blah you could do this on the wall 
or you do it on the computer. This is one of my favorite discoveries of the past um, year or so. I really think they should give me a commission because I think this is the third conference that I've talked about this particular software app, but it's an online whiteboarder thing. It has like post-it mode, but you can also draw in it and you can, you could do charts. They have a lot of templates that you can use. I just think it's awesome. If you work remotely, like a lot of people do in the, in the podcast industry these days, if you have a team that's spread out and you want to be able to work in post-its together, this is a godsend. It's also, I don't know if anyone else has ever experienced this, but you spend all this time doing the post-it thing and it's on some wall at the office and then you go home and you have a brilliant idea at 11 PM and you don't have access to the thing, or you have the post-its up for so long that their stickiness starts to get messed up, and then you're like, you feel panicked because something fell off, and you're like, what is our structure? So this is nice because it just stays, um, and it's not that fiddly. So Miro, go there. They have a free account option. Here's just another example of what you can do in Miro. So like this was for a whole hour of reveal with an A, a B, and a C segment. And I made like little picture boxes for people and how they were connected and then the investigative findings and then like the real skeletal version of the outline of each piece. So Miro's cool. I deserve that commission. <laughs> All right, so moral support. Uh, how is your reporter doing? Are they making all their deadlines? Are they seeming happy about the thing? Or if not happy, are they seeming productive and like they're doing well? Do they seem like they're falling apart? Do you need to check on them? And of course, it depends on your individual relationship with someone. It depends on who you are, kind of like in your organizational hierarchy. There's a lot of you know, things to consider, but it's also really great to be a human being when you're working with another human being and just check in on that human being level. How's it going? What do you need? Can I be helpful in that? Because ultimately, I'm like, the story needs to get out. So you need to be doing okay so that you can make the story so the story can get out. Um, are they in despair? That's a real thing. People can get really, really low when they're working on stuff. So how can you provide hope? How can you provide encouragement? Remind people why, why they're doing the thing in the first place? What got them so excited about it at the beginning? Like Anna Sussman said, before their hope was destroyed, I think is what she said. Sometimes it's even like someone is like, I can't figure this out. And you just need to take dictation for them. Just like, don't look at the page anymore. Just say it to me and I will just type. And then there, your script starts appearing. And that can do a lot just psychologically. From nothing, you have something, and then you can kind of hand it back to them. And they've already started the wheel turning again. Sometimes it's not that they need support or like a hug or whatever, but they need you to be an enforcer. They're not meeting their deadlines. Maybe it's not that you know something's going on that you need to help them with, but it's like you need to help them just do the fucking thing like set more granular deadlines like maybe you can't you don't have you were supposed to turn in a 20 minute draft to me you have nothing so I'm not gonna um give you a hug I'm gonna tell you give me five pages by the end of today 
right? Or maybe you need to create some consequences. I think like the ultimate consequence is like, if you have the power to do this and you want to use it, it's sort of like the nuclear option, but you could say like, this story will be killed if you do not bring it in. And that can be real sometimes depending on where you work. It's like, there's a news peg for this thing or like the fake example I brought up, this carnival's happening, right? Like we can only run the story about the carnival the week after the carnival. If you don't go to the carnival, you can't do that story. I don't care how passionate you are about this fucking carnival. You got to get it done or we can't run it, you know? And that's like a waste of your time and a waste of my time. Um, sometimes it's about making them show you the shitty draft, like that kind of enforcing. It can be scary to show a shitty draft to an editor. But I will tell you from my perspective, a thousand times I would rather see a shitty draft than no draft because then at least we have something to start working with. And if you think, you know, if you think your story isn't working and you think it's shitty, like I can help you figure out why it's shitty. It might be shitty. <laughs> but if you if we don't talk about it, we'll never figure out how to make it not shitty. I've also done this before. Someone will have the story, you know, like it's a 10-minute story and they have a 50-page draft. I just won't even look at it. I'll send it back. Say I can't I can't work with this. You know, I'm not, the way that an editor can be helpful is if they have a certain amount of distance from the writing and from the generative part of it. Otherwise, you're too much in there. You can't really stand outside. So if it's this giant hot mess and I have to go in and like kind of rewrite it in a way in order to evaluate it, I'm not going to be able to do my job well. So it's not just being mean either. It's like, Again, how are we going to make this better? Part of making it better is that you commit to bring me something that I can really work with. Um, and it's not a 50-page draft. <laughs> Unless it's like a, what would that be? Unless it's like a, a feature-length movie of a, of a podcast or episode. Um, now we're going to hear Stephanie Fu again. To be a good editor, you need to be a good listener. You know, being able to say, what are you trying to say here? How are you afraid of coming across? What are your fears right now? How can I support you? What do you need? And you have to be sincere about it too, because you can be super mean and then say, I'm here to support you, but people will still be afraid of you and afraid to approach you. Um, so you really have to have people's back. On the other hand, bad editors uh, yeah, maybe they don't get your drafts back to you in time. Or maybe if you make a small mistake, they say, hey, you forgot this. Why did you forget it? There's no good answer to why did you forget this besides like, I guess I'm just a huge moron. So, you know, trying to convey that someone has made a mistake in like a straightforward but human way and if someone keeps messing up you know when somebody is really on my back scaring me being a mean editor i tend to make so many more mistakes um i tend to be so much more intimidated and so if someone keeps messing up i think it's important to see whether it's something in the relationship that it can be fixed, whether it's something in this person's personal life that can be fixed. Um, and so I think it's important to say, hey, what's going on? Are you okay? How can I support you as a human being? Because probably if you're a competent producer, 
if you're stable as a human, you're probably going to be making better work. Mm -hmm. I love that. Here's where I also think a lot about that birth metaphor. If you are clenched, something cannot come out. (laughs) Right? If you are relaxed, it can come out. Those of you who have not given birth, there is another metaphor for that. I'll just leave that there. Um, So then once there's a thing, like a discrete object, a draft, it could be um, a draft mix, it could be um, a script, ideally it's both. Um, Ears first, I'm very much an ears first editor. We work in audio, so that's just what it is. You never get a second chance to make a first impression. So for me, that first listen is really precious. I try as much as I can, even if I know a lot, we've gone through an outline, we've talked over and over, I've heard some of the tape, I don't wanna read the script first because it'll just color my experience of my first listen if I already know what's coming. So I try to always, if I can, listen first. Ideally, for me, there's like three possibilities for that. Ideally, it's a rough mix because then I can listen to it once all the way through and then listen to it as many times as I want to and go back and forth and replay bits of... If that's not possible for whatever reason, I like a live read-through with tape. So have the producer line up their tape in order and then have them read the script to me live and then we'll play it. And I don't like to stop during that. I like to just go as if it's really I'm listening to it for real and I'll time that. The Sort of third option for me, and oftentimes, like if you're remote or if it's hard to schedule, this can be the one, um, is sending a script, but then also sending audio clips. So laying everything out in order so that I can play them myself as I read and then sort of like listen in my mind to that reporter's voice. And then as you're doing that review, you're not thinking, I mean, you can't help but think, do I like this? But really, like, to be useful, you're not thinking, do I like it? But you're thinking, how is this story, is this story hitting its potential? Is it reaching its highest and best form? And how can we get there? Whether I like it or not, I think it can be hard to sort of parse, do I like it, with is this engaging? But I think there is a difference. So you can not like a story or, like, not like somebody's voice or any number of things, but the story can still really work and can still be really worthy. So I try to take that out of the equation as much as possible. As I'm reviewing, I'm also, again, like I said, trying to be the listener. So I try to like dumb myself down, beginner's mind. I've never heard this before. I don't know anything about this subject. I've never heard of this reporter. Like what's clear and what's not clear? Where am I confused? Where am I bored? Where did I start looking at the wall? When did I start thinking about my laundry? Or where was I really, really drawn in? And like what what made me feel something in my body? All of those things on the listen. And then I like to listen first without taking notes and then see what uh, is salient, see what kind of remains, like floats to the top after that first listen. And then I'll take notes. I might do another listen and take notes into the script or I'll take notes onto a different page. Or For me, it's a different brain function writing on a notepad versus typing into the script. So I like to toggle between both. I don't know if I could articulate what the difference is, but sometimes I'm like, it's a notebook day. And I'll you know write time codes in the notebook as we go. And then... Um, transcribe those into a script so they're useful for a reporter. And sometimes it's fine to just type into the script. I don't really know why. Again, like different editors' brains work differently. Different people's brains work differently. 
Uh, gonna listen to Allison McAdam now. One misconception I often hear is, um, we'll have some scripts ready soon, um, so you can look them over. And you have to explain to people that as an audio editor, A, the process starts way before you have scripts, or it should, and B, that you have to use your ears, that if you're going to edit something um, that is made of sound, you have to hear it. Sometimes I say that this is like asking a, a film editor to, um, or a film director to, to edit with their eyes closed. That's ridiculous. You would never do that. You have to be able to step back and be the person who can step back and see things as a listener might. And so a good editor is an advocate for the listener, but also an advocate for the story that you're trying to tell. And a good editor can marry those two things together. Once you've done the review, then you give the feedback. And sometimes, actually, you know what is one difference? Sometimes when I'm, I don't always know this ahead of time, but sometimes I'm glad I'm taking notes in a notebook because I don't necessarily want the reporter to see that I wrote, this is a fucking mess for example, or this part is really boring, or whatever it might be, the tracking is really bad. Um, and that goes to this point, this is vulnerable stuff. I think it's really important for an editor to remember what a big deal it is for someone to make something. Even if you're a reporter and the story doesn't have to do with you, you made something, and then you're holding it up and someone's going to judge it. So just remembering that that's the situation you're in. And so I love the compliment sandwich, or as I say, at least the compliment hors d'oeuvre. If you can only find one positive thing to say, find that one positive thing and lead with that. Make sure it's sincere. It might be hard to find it, but find it because that will set the tone for the rest of what that person is going to hear from you. And you want them to hear the criticisms. And if you start with, you're a big moron, as Stephanie Fu kind of brought forward, you're not going to be able to hear it. Even if you hear it, you're not going to be able to use it. So um, that for me is super important. Um, I also do like to ask people for their feedback before I jump in. I might have like four pages of notes, but I'll say, what did you think? Because maybe they're going to come up with something on their own and we already agree on it and they don't have to hear it from me. Such and such isn't working because they're already like, it doesn't work, you know, and like I give them the agency to tell me what's working and not working. Um, structure first. So a pet peeve of mine uh, is editors who go in and just line edit at the very beginning. And it depends, like if you work on um, spot news or really like tight deadlines, this you might not always have time for a beautiful long sound edit either. Maybe you have to go to the script. Um, but if you at all can, think about big picture first. Because if you're doing a lot of line edits, maybe you're actually gonna cut that whole section out later and it's just a waste of time to be like fussing with word choice. It's also that once your editor mind goes into doing line edits, you've kind of lost that big picture. And like that first listen is really, really great to hear like, is the shape of this thing even working? Is the argument we're making clear? Um, like, are, are, do I know who this person even is or what they have to do with the story? Stuff like that that you should deal with first before you get to the sort of fine polishing of the story. 
One thing I've learned a lot from working with more green reporters and people who are learning how to make stories, but I think it's also very true for anyone, is for you to be willing to explain the reason behind the edits or the decisions that you're making. Sometimes I'll actually write it into my note, like I'm making this cut because blah, 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 blah. Or I don't think this section is working because of blah, 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 blah. That's why I'm moving it here. That's especially useful when working with newer people or people who you know have trouble taking feedback because you kind of uh, preempt the defensiveness or preempt the argument. Um, but also be willing because sometimes you'll make a decision and the person will come back and disagree with it. So you want to just be ready to tell them why and then be really willing to, to meet them. Like if they have a good counter reason, you know, be willing to let go. At the same time, be willing to put your foot down. Um, and this is Vinnie Tong, uh, managing editor, I think is her title at KQED in San Francisco. I loved your prompts. Um, one thing it really made me think about was how important it was for me to learn how to take feedback as a reporter, as somebody who was writing narrative nonfiction, as somebody who was making stories, how that was super important, a really important step in learning how to deliver feedback. So in some sense, I think well, I'm just going to own up to the fact that I used to be really, really bad at taking feedback. Um, anytime somebody would offer some criticism, even if it was very well-intentioned, um, I could get real defensive. I could sort of jump right to the counter-arguments. And it wasn't until I learned how to hit pause on my own reaction that I started to be able to learn what they were trying to tell me in their feedback. And that sort of learning process has been really, really critical in me becoming an editor and knowing how to deliver feedback to other people. So I'm just going to show just a couple of different ways that you can actually go in the script. So if you work in Google Docs you can, or in Word Doc, you can um, work in suggestion mode. So everything is like undoable or doable and you can do these side comments. Um, on, on what you're, on the changes that you're suggesting you're making. There's also this way, which is where I learned at KALW. This is, yeah, it's like an old edit of mine where you kind of preserve more visually the words. Nothing is struck through, but you're making cuts by multiple parentheses. The, the editor is communicating through the document in all caps. So like, this, these sort of suggested rewrites are all caps, just so I can see if I'm the producer, like this is where the editor's writing. I like this. I've over time changed to the other one in Google Docs, but I think both are useful ways to do it. It's a cycle, as we talked about. We go around and around through these things and just try to make it through. Okay. Goodbye. <laughs> um, so what's it like on the daily, guys? Not on the show, but depends on if you are an editor at, a, um, at an outlet that does the same kind of thing all the time. If you're um, a freelancer working on a lot of different things, if you work on short features, if you work on really long pieces, um, if you work on, if you're a managing editor or an executive producer, executive editor, you're going to be doing different things. But mainly... <laughs> 
you're meeting. <laughs> it's a lot of meetings. <laughs> meeting with reporters, um, meeting with other, other editors, maybe making editorial decisions on pitches. You are meeting with reporters at the beginnings, at the middles, at the ends of their processes. You might be sitting in, you might be lucky enough to work with uh, in a shop that has like um, dedicated engineers that you can sit in with and like go through and like be polishing on the sonic level as well. Sometimes you're working on nine stories in one week. Sometimes you're working on one story in one week. I think as an editor, I found that rarely, rarely do I have one thing on my plate at once. So I think one of the really top skills and difficulties, challenges of being an editor is having to switch tracks a lot. And to be really good and to be useful to each of the people that you're working with, you have to be able to fully, deeply engage in whatever story and with whatever person you're, you're working with in that moment, in whatever the time period is. And then, you know, maybe you go have a quick pee break and then you come back and you have to just be completely, fully engaged in this other thing. And sometimes it's very weird, like, especially if you're a freelancer. I know friends who are like, okay, then like from two to four, I'm like deep in this investigative, like true crime thing about like somebody who died in Alaska. And then like, I have to switch tracks and we're doing this like fun buddy, like two best friends going on a road trip and then I switch tracks and I'm like, this is how the brain works. And so you have to be able to do that. And then maybe after you do that, like the other reporter calls you with some emergency and you have to like immediately get back in that zone and try to remember. It's fine if you don't always remember. Sometimes I'll ask your reporter, can you remind me who that is? <laughs> I don't know who the fuck you're talking about. But then once they start talking, you're like, oh, yeah. And then we were thinking to use him not at the beginning, but in the middle and because of this and this. So you just you're like holding a lot of stuff and you need to be able to put it down completely and also be able to pick it up completely kind of at any moment. Um, and that can be exhausting, to be real. Finally, let's get started. So whether you do this kind of work already or you're interested in doing this kind of work, here are a few ways to get good at it or to start doing it. So number one is make things. I think some of the best editors, you don't have to have made audio pieces, but I kind of think you have to um, know what's involved. So the more you know about what it feels like to be on this side of the process, the more you can be helpful on this side. Um, I think... As Catherine St. Louis was saying, listen really closely to things, deconstruct them in your mind, listen to them over and over, figure out what works, what didn't work, um, why you think they worked and like what you like and what you, how you think stories should be made. Get edited, ideally by a lot of different editors and then steal the stuff that you like from what they do and say, I'm never doing that about the things that you don't like that they do. Um, take notes on all of that. Give feedback to your peers if you don't have a chance to formally be an editor on a project. Anytime someone is asking for feedback, jump on that. Practice giving feedback. Um, give yourself feedback. If you don't have an editor, be your own editor and try to kind of toggle your toggle your brain between like being in the generative mode and then being in the reviewing mode, evaluating mode. Find mentors. There are a lot of great mentoring programs out there, but I would really encourage you, if you feel like you want guidance, reach out to someone. 
Maybe it's someone you met at a conference. Maybe it's someone you haven't met, but reach out to them. And one big tip I have about finding a mentor is like, you do the work. Make it easy for someone to say yes to you. So define period of time that you want to work with someone. So I, I would, I really want some guidance around X and I'd like to meet with you four times over the next three months. And we're going to meet for this long each time you design the agenda, you come to each meeting really prepared. So that person just has to show up. Um, and I think a lot of people out there are willing to say yes to something like that when they might not be willing to say yes to something more amorphous. So don't be afraid to reach out. The worst that could happen is they could say no. Same thing about raising your hand. There's very real issues of privilege and access and all of that power stuff in workplaces. At the same time, I encourage you, any chance that you see, raise your hand. A mentorship program, um, sitting in on a group edit, even if you're not on that team. Um, Asking somebody, can I give you feedback on the thing that you're working on? I'm really trying to practice this skill. So like, if it's something that you want to move towards, start moving yourself towards it. I would just encourage that. Um, finally, I said at the beginning, um, myself, Julie Kane, Casey Miner, Leela Day, we are hoping to have some... to make some sort of longer training, like maybe a weekend training that's more in-depth and more kind of practical steps um, towards being editor. This is really like an overview, but we were really real about wanting to bring more people into the field. So if you're interested in that, let me know. Let Julie know she's around. Um, let Leela know. Uh, let Casey know if you know her. She's not at the conference this year. But um, yeah. We want to we want to make it happen. So if we can get if we can show funders that there's a lot of um, desire for it, then we're much more likely to be able to make it happen. Um, finally, I just want to say thank you to Julie and Casey and Leela for helping make this thing happen, and then to all the contributors. Some people did not make it into the finished piece, as happens sometimes in our audio pieces for various reasons, but um, Alicia Zuckerman, George Lavender, Ben Treffney, and Monica Campbell all sent me really great tape that I just couldn't use. And then Slides Carnival, who made the slides and made it not look really gross and boring, is what it would have been if it was just me. So thank you, everyone, and um, questions, comments, anything. My question is about group listening sessions. I've been to a few and like sat in and sometimes it's felt like people gang up on the reporter. And so um, how do you suggest structuring those so it feels constructive and not brutal? Um, one thing I'll suggest, uh, which I won't go into because it'll take too long, but look up Liz Lehrman's I forget what it's called. She's a choreographer. I used to be in, in the dance world. So she has this thing called, I think it's like constructive feedback process. It's just like a very specific uh, protocol for how to give feedback on artistic work. But I think it's really great for any kind of work. And um, the sort of meta thing about that is like have a structure, basically. Don't just listen to a thing and say like, well, what'd you think? Maybe at the beginning say, I'm really looking for feedback on what's boring, and then when you're done, say, okay, so what was boring? So if you come with a very specific desire, or you listen and then at the end, like have someone facilitate it. We're gonna start with things that worked. Everyone, like who has things that worked? Okay, the next question we're gonna deal with is 
like where were you confused? And so I think that that can cut down a lot on people just being like, well, I didn't like it. And the guy was really stupid. You know, like if you kind of let people just roll with whatever's at the top of their head, a lot of times it's just all going to come out negative because they're trying to be helpful, but really they're just like in that mode. So that's what I would say. Do you have any advice for people who are working with an editor who kind of like might have fallen into the editor role and don't necessarily have the personality traits and characteristics that make a good editor? I think a lot of a lot of people end up I mean I kind of fell into the editor role myself and like came to this philosophy over time and I'm sure early people who worked with me were like what the fuck. <laughs> um but advice for like how to deal with that as the producer reporter I think for me part of it is this like defining the relationship thing like at the beginning of your process being um like being brave enough to say what you need basically I we're gonna work on this piece together sort of define the parameters of what that is and then here's what I would like from you or here's what I need from you I think that um also if it feels like too big of a step to be like, here's what I need from you, depending on your relationship, it could also be, um, I'd really like to get clear and specific about what this process is going to be. So can we write down, like, you're going to give me feedback on my outline. I'm going to send you a reporting plan. It's sort of it's topping from the bottom, if you will. Um, like, you... You know what you need, and you would like to dictate it, but you've got to, like, be real about the power structure wherever you are and figure out, like, the most appealing and palatable way to present the ideas. I think a good trick for working with people above you on the power ladder is making it seem like it's their idea. So, like, however you can make that happen, that's a good way to get buy-in. Um, and also, like, coming prepared with what your asks are, even if you're not going to state them that directly, just having them at least in your mind. Out of this meeting, I really want to be able to X, Y, Z. Hi, thanks for this. Um, I work with teens telling their very first stories, and I'm curious, yeah, when you're working with newer reporters, green reporters, like you said, um, how many editing how many edits do you typically do for each story? And do you find that there's a point past which um, it's like... Like diminishing returns. Exactly. Um, I don't really have a rule. It really depends on what your needs are. Like if these are going into a thing or like going to air and you know when that is, then you kind of count backwards. And then that's how you set your deadlines. I mean, that's useful for any process. Uh, it's also gauging... If you haven't worked with them before, then it's hard to gauge, but gauging like how much they can take. <laughs> it can also be useful to define ahead of time. Usually we go through three to four edits. So let's expect that and let's plan accordingly. Or maybe that's too many, like depends on how much time you have with them. Like we're gonna go through two edits of this. So what I need from you when you bring me your first draft is that it has to have this and this and this in place already. So you kind of make your agreements based on that. And then I will bring it back to you. I'm going to give you feedback on the structure and uh, and see if you need to bring me any more tape. And then you give it back to them. And then, like, that helps you, too, to, like, not, um, not stress out overly much. You're like, I only get one more edit at this. So 
how good can I make it in one edit and then be able to let it go. You know what I mean? I wanted to ask you two things. First, in countries where there's no tradition of audio editing, where would you start looking for people who could be editors? That's the first question. I think for me, it's like if you, it's like what Catherine was saying in that uh, piece of tape in the beginning. Like if you're a person who often deconstructs things as you're listening or after you listen to them, that's like a person to go for. Um, if you like talking to people about their problems, <laughs> that's another like good sign. If you're a good communicator, um, it's like some people are very possessive of their work and it's not like a positive or negative thing. It's just like some people are very like, this is mine and I am the creator. If you're that kind of person, you're probably not going to be a great editor. It's going to be hard to like figure out that detachment part. So if you're someone who's like kind of free with ideas and, and, and sort of more free minded that way, then that's also another, another good place to look. And the second question is about moral support. I love that slide. And as a producer who needs a lot of moral support, and I always want to share like everything, like every this, like I had this idea. How much is like too much? And also, how how do you work? Do you have like a twenty four seven telephone, or do you just tell them like you can have like I don't know, talk, I don't know, talk to me about your problems once a week for an hour? <laughs> like how a therapist. Yeah. 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 <laughs> I mean, I would say it really depends. Like I was saying, everybody works in a different way. So if you're the type of person that's okay with people like calling you anytime, be upfront with that. If you're like, definitely no, then say like, I'm available between nine and 4 p.m. And after that, I'll get to you tomorrow. You could even like put it in your email signature or something like that. Like, <laughs> thanks reporter that I work with every day. Thanks for your email. I'll get back to you in 12 hours. Um, it is important to set boundaries. I have worked with reporters who need a lot of, um, who need to talk things out to really um, understand what they're doing. So uh, like there's someone uh, like that I've worked with in an office before where who would sort of like come up to me all the time. So like at my old office, we had a rule. If you have headphones on, don't talk to them unless it's an emergency. So that's something that you can do, I think, even if you're not in physically the same space. Like if you're on Slack or something like that, like don't, don't be available, <laughs> that kind of thing. I mean, it is a gray area and it depends on how much you, how much energy you have and how much you're willing to give. But it's definitely something you need to think about. Hi, Verilyn on the mic this time. Um, so two things. One is when you talked about wanting to listen to the raw tape, I do that often. And I've been thinking a lot about like how, what if I, if that was, if it's not a sustainable model, uh -huh. <laughs> especially if you're like, you know, taking on different projects. Because it takes too long. Is that what you mean? Because it takes too long. I struggle with the detachment thing and the ambition. I love all of that stuff. Like I think I like, but I'm, been a reporter producer for so long that like trying to just be a story editor sometimes I feel like I'm invested and I'm all in and I almost don't always know how to make something good unless I'm like in it um so if you could talk a little bit more about that and then I wanted to actually bring it up in this room in particular because I get a lot of um what I like to call like um is this racist um, request? <laughs> <laughs> From people that you're not directly working with? Yeah, like yeah. people that have not, I don't know anything about this project. Oh, I know this question. And, and so like a lot of times I want to give an honest, but, but you also have to be like realistic about what's possible. With your time. With my, with my time, also with how far along it is. Oh. Like 
Like, there's... yes, this is racist, but you have to put it on the air? Like, yes, this is racist, and well, yes, this is problematic in the way I that... I see, right. It cannot be problematic if you go back and ask this judge that you got yeah, this yeah, one. Yeah. To, you know what I mean? Yep. So like, that's getting people to think about like what they could have done in the beginning, but now we're here. And like, have you ever gotten that? And like, what? How do you deal with that? My big picture answer is hire more editors of color. Um, it's just like, it's it's not like an easy fix, but it takes care of a lot. If there are people in the room who can say, "Hello, <laughs> that is not cool." Things will just go better. I think. Um, uh, are you asking for people like in your position, or it's the thing where you're like, well, on the one hand, like you're my friend, and I'm happy that you're asking, and I'm willing. I'm like happy to, especially I'm like pay, they're paying. I'm usually getting paid, so it's yeah. like, yeah, I'm happy for the yeah. opportunity. But also, I just I do think that we all know diversity is important. I feel like every time I say diversity, a fairy dies somewhere. So like diversity <laughs> is important, but at the end of the day, money is budgets are what yeah. they are. And so I guess like, I'm just curious about you as someone that's like been doing this for a while further along, like how have you ne negotiated that? Mm. Well, I, so I'm lucky enough where I've worked, I've been able to be a part of the green lighting process like on the team of people who say yes or no to things so like in the very beginning stages like some pitches are just problematic for example like a real um a thing i see too often is this i call it like the mode of astonishment it's like white middle class astonishment like this thing this happens a lot in investigative work this horrible thing is happening yes we want to shine a spotlight on it but the tone is not like oh my god i didn't know this was happening it's like you know, these one million people knew this was happening because it was happening to them for like 150 years. Um, and so when I see things like that, I just try to call them out um, as early as possible. I think that on the other side, I have really admired colleagues of mine who know that they're entering into a story where they have blind spots or where they know that there are things that they don't know. So they tell me ahead of time, can you, do you have time? Like, I'm working on this thing. Do you mind if I check in with you every once in a while? Do you have time to like look at a draft of this? Because here's a thing that I find maybe problematic about it, but I don't know if I trust my own judgment on it. And when people come to me like that, I'm, I'm very happy to, help out because I feel like those people have done the work in themselves already to know that there are things they don't know. But if it's like at the very end of a process and someone's like, ooh, this might be racist. Let me just double check with like the first person of color that I can find. That's when I'm like a little bit like, you should have done your homework like internally and externally before you come to me. Um, I was wondering if you could talk about the process of editing um, like on a story-by-story -story basis, but also it par as part of a series, because I feel like the narrative arc that a series takes, um, like, is that a different editing process? And how do you keep that in mind when you're moving story to story, but also looking at this larger sort of work, basically? I think like fundamentally it's the same, but it's just more complicated and more of a mind fuck, honestly, because sometimes you're making stuff and you don't know all of the stuff you have or are going to get, but you still have to start making it. So it's like really, uh, it's like to go back to my slides, it's like the engagement detachment, like 
for real, like engaging fully in this version of the story that you believe is going to happen than being able to like let that go if that's not where it's going. I think it also, using tools like Miro or like getting a bigger wall to put your post-its on, like being able to have structures that are like I wanna say fractal, what's the word? So like you have the microcosmic version of it but that you can then zoom out and like whatever your tools are. Uh, I find it really useful to have visual tools when you're working in that kind of thing so you can see see what you're working with. Like this, let's say if you're working with post-its and you have a character that's like going across but maybe they're not in every episode, then like that person is purple or that person is heart shape or whatever your thing is. And then you can, when you zoom out, you can see where like heart shape appears. And then later on you can be like, actually heart shape was here and didn't reappear till here, but actually we forgot who heart was. So let's make sure that heart appears here. So things like that I think can be really useful because it's you can really get lost in it. And I think those are also the times when it's really important to not slip into the reporter producer role. Because the more you do that, you're just going to be lost in the soup with them. And they're going to be looking to you for help. And you'll be like, I don't know. Like, I'm in here with you. And that's when you're, like, calling for the doctor or whoever to come save you. Yeah. Thanks very much. This was pretty awesome. Um, a lot of good things laid out. Uh, where does um, the fact-checking process um, roll into this, um, and how adversarial can it be, and how do you get beyond that sometimes? Thanks. Yeah, so that's a very good question. So depends on who the story is for, outlet-wise. So if you're working in journalism and fact-checking is something that you have to do. It's useful to bring that in as early as possible. I was talking about gut checks. There are some things where like if somebody is coming to you with a hypothesis about a phenomenon that's happening out in the world, try to get proof of that as soon as you can because sometimes it can go off the rails and you can make a story about something that's not actually true and then you have to kind of throw it away or start from scratch and it just doesn't feel good for anybody. Um, I would recommend um, having a fact-checking protocol that is laid out ahead of time so that everyone knows what the deal is. So that would include things like how you want it formatted. Do you want it in comments? Do you want it in footnotes? How deeply does it need to be sourced? Do you want one source? Does it have to be uh, can it be a secondary source? Do you need one primary source and two secondary sources? What do you do with things that you can't document? So, for example, how many people would you need to corroborate something before you would let it go, uh, let it be in the story? Um, to lay that stuff out ahead of time is useful for the reporter or producer. So, like anything, if you have like a contract ahead of time, it's much easier to solve disputes. So having that fact-checking protocol with things laid out can sometimes really help with that. Sometimes there's, sometimes it's just what it is. You're like, I, you know, for example, like we work for an investigative outlet. We cannot let this go. We just can't. And I'm sorry, but that's that's like the putting your foot down. And sometimes it's like, okay, how much can we tweak the wording and still be within what we're, what we need to do. Hi, I'm Laura Morris. I'm a producer at Gimlet. And as a producer, how, in your opinion, how can a producer or reporter best support their editor? Wow. 
That's a really good one. I think recognizing that, and it depends, like there are some editors who are mean or think they know everything. So if you're dealing with one of those, then act accordingly. But try to remember that the editor is a human being too, and probably they entered into this job trying to help people in some way. People might not all, you know, like this midwifing metaphor might work for you. It might not work for you at all. But I think at bottom, fundamentally, the editor role is a helper role. So try to remember that that's, that should be where your editor's coming from. Um, I think the thing about getting defensive about feedback, uh, there's a way to fight for what you want without getting defensive. And so when the editor producer gets defensive about something and starts to bring like anger or personal emotion, it gets very hard to keep talking about what you're actually talking about. And like, I'm a human being. If someone's coming at me, I'm gonna get flooded too. I'm not gonna be able to think that clearly either. And then we'll just be kind of arguing, but we won't be making the piece better anymore. Hi, we're talking a lot about like relationships between producers and editors. And I actually, I have an answer for your question, Laura. Because <laughs> um, it's what I wanted to come up and talk about. Um, I come from a sound design background and I have fallen backwards into documentary making. Um, and it's really awesome. In the most recent thing that I worked on, my editor is a tried and true science journalist, and I come from audio art, and the way that we would literally just create a piece is entirely different. The slide that you had earlier, editing versus tape and script, was a huge divide for us that like we did not know how we were gonna like gauge. Um, what we ended up doing was she allowed me to figure out based on like a half hour is what I was given for my time, make sure that I have a tape bank across all of my interviewees that didn't exceed 15 minutes. So it's I wanted to listen over and over again and just not do transcription, because transcription for me is like an accessibility issue. You do it at the end and you do it for fact checkers. That's it. Um, so I wanted to make sure all of my edits, all the cuts, the bites that I was giving her actually sounded like cohesive bites and then we created a script. And for her, she goes through a piece going, okay, I'm gonna interview a bunch of people, do research, take notes from both, write the story with no quotes, and then figure out where I'm gonna put quotes in. Um, so the fact that we could find a way to work together by saying like, all right, I'm going to give you that quote bank in a format that I understand how to make, and then we're gonna take my research notes, the, like the outline, and build it into a piece was like, Awesome. It was one of the most positive experiences I had with an editor. So if you're an editor in here and you work with like a producer that's coming from a different place than you, like find something that takes like a zipper between the two of you. That's like, great. That's awesome. Okay. I love that. Thank you. Great session. <laughs> so that reminds me, like I'm always talking about like therapeutic analogies, but this reminds me of the idea of love languages. Like if you're in a relationship and one person shows love by bringing you a sandwich and the other person shows love by like kissing you all the time, that you find some way of working it out together. Like I don't want to be kissed all the time, but I can be kissed part of the time and like, you know, bring me a san one sandwich a week. Hi. Um, are there parts of the editing process, whether it's um, structure, moral support, that shift and maybe become more important if you're operating on a much tighter deadline, let's say even daily-ish? Yeah, yeah, for sure, 
For sure. I think the challenge for people who work on daily stuff is how to maintain your ambitions or uh, your desire for craft with the very, very real, you know, you got to get this on the air or there will be nothing on the air and you'll get fined by the FCC. <laughs> um, well, I think that the, the moral support part can come in many ways. It doesn't have to be like sitting down and like having a therapy session for an hour. Maybe it's if you think more big picture about that, like you, let's say you, you're managing like a few reporters that you meet with them one-on-one -on, -one on a weekly basis. So it doesn't come in the editing of a particular story, but that you're there for them in like a broader sense. That's one thing I would say. Um, I would also say like thinking about how you can kind of plan ahead for things. So if you know that like you have to go out and do like a spot on whatever, like a protest that's happening that you, before the reporter goes out, talk through structure. This is what I mean by like, you can sometimes swap like where these appeared in order, like talk through structure before so that that groundwork is laid. They go out and they get the tape. They have a much better sense of what they're trying to get. And then when they come back, you, you already have a basis to work from. Um, so planning ahead on, on, on different things like that. Or if you know that someone's like a real nervous person, building that into your process. Like you don't just say, I'm assigning you to go do this, but you say, I'm assigning you to go to this and you're gonna do a great job. Or whatever you think it is that's going to help them do good work. It's not about like falsely bolstering people, but like being sincere about how to help them out. Hi, I'm Karen. Thank you for a great talk. Um, I'm a bit curious because you started out saying that nobody wants to be editors. Uh, I used to be a producer and a host and a reporter, and now I'm an editor. And uh, for me, it's been uh, actually a quite rough journey because you kind of have to leave the guys behind you. Uh, you're no, no longer uh, part of the, the working people. You're like one of them, giving critiques. What's your best advice becoming an editor when you used to be one of the uh, good guys, if you can say that. <laughs> uh, what, what's your what's your experience with that? I mean, that that's very real. Sometimes you have other job responsibilities, like now you have to write an evaluation, like a performance review for somebody. I think um, one thing is just to remember what it was like to be on the other side, the same thing on the granular level of when you're in the edit, just remember what it feels like to have someone, you know, talk about your work. Um, I think to actually literally say to people when it's appropriate, I don't know the answer here. I'm, I'm not like stating where you're coming from. I'm not giving you this, um, I'm not making this edit because I think I know better. I'm doing it because I think such and such and such. It's like sort of that thing of explaining where your edits come from. Um, I think also if you become an editor in the same shop where you were a producer, just like being socially aware. I think you have to be, in any time you're a manager in any field, like. A good manager is aware of the realities of the hierarchy and at the same time, uh, you know, and like working appropriately within that, but at the same time, like being a human about that. It's kind of like don't change your relationships just because you became an editor. <laughs>
Yeah, but still you're now closer to the power. Yes, it's true. Well, and so for me, what that's, in, what, what that's meant has been using my power for good. So what I try to do is I try to advocate for people who don't have that position of power. I'm not going to try to repeat it, but Toni Morrison has an amazing quote about this, that when you rise to a position of power, it is your responsibility to lift other people up. And um, I definitely feel that, like I said, as a woman of color, sometimes I'm the only woman or I'm the only person of color, or both in a room where decisions are being made. And I hold that in my mind. And I think, what's going to be best for everyone here? It's like, I don't forget that I'm in this position as a helper, I guess. It's like comes from that as well. Hi, thank you so much. Um, you were talking about the setup phase and how sometimes, you know, you get tape that's boring or you think there's not a story here. And I'm wondering how you navigate, like, sometimes the most supportive thing to do is to say, oh, you need more reporting or, yeah, to connect them to, them to that initial spark. And sometimes the most supportive thing to do is to cut it. And I'm wondering how you navigate that and how you make decisions on what just when to stop stories and start something different. Uh, do you have an example in my mind? <laughs> well, I don't have a, a specific example that I'd like to talk about, but I'm a teaching assistant for radio students. And so I'm trying to navigate the, the role between being supportive and yeah, like go explore, go report, but also trying to play that role of an editor that they'll experience uh, when they graduate when sometimes it'll be like, no, there's nothing here. I guess one thing would be to not, to not lean too far into support if your editor intuition is telling you that's not a story. As Julie was saying, we were talking about the little voice in a different context, but like, as an editor, um, get to know your intuition, get to know like your gut feelings. This is the thing about like first impressions. So like your first impression of a bitch, if you're like, mm, doesn't seem right or seems like something I've heard 15 million times before or like, and it's a little different with students because you want them to get the experience. Um, I Like I hear your tension there, but I think it's also not useful to support someone towards something that's not going to be as good as it could be. So like at the beginning, if you're hearing a pitch and for example, if it's something that the local TV station does this every year at Halloween, like one of those. I think that happens a lot. People get excited about a peg or something and they're like, yeah. Um, try to guide them towards something that similar or, you know, rack your brain. Like, what is the essence of this? What, why is that person excited about this? And what else, therefore, what else could they get excited about? Like, if this is terrible, it's not even a real thing, but like, if it's about trick or treating, like maybe you, you're like, we can't do a story about trick-or-treating, but what is it about candy? Or what is it about people dressing up? Or what is it about um, like the idea of a mask that, that is exciting this reporter? So that's when you ask them lots of questions. Why did you come up with this idea? Where is it coming from for you? What is it that you want to pursue about it? And maybe you can help sort of guide them over to something that's going to be more cool. <laughs> Yeah, thanks. I'm curious during the editing process, how you decide like when it's the appropriate time to give criticisms that offer people the opportunity to kind of come up with the solution on their own. Say like this doesn't really work, but like 
I leave it to you to kind of decide how best to address this problem versus when it's like, this needs to be fixed by the end of the day. The most efficient way of doing that is for me to just tell you how to fix it or do it myself. That is a really good question. It's something that I definitely think about a lot. I think um, part of it's timing, of course. Like if you do need to finish it by the end of the day, then kind of got to get it done. Um, it's also about knowing how it's nice when you get to work with the same people over and over because you get to know their style. If you know that someone takes a long time to write, then you just account for that and how you deal with it. So if you ha only have like two days left before you have to turn this in and a lot is like messy, maybe you go for a more aggressive rewrite. I try to let people know when I'm going to do that and when I'm not. This is also part of defining the relationship ahead of time. So like if you've talked through what the process is ideally at the very beginning, and then you're kind of both on that same page. When you deviate from that, like I could say, I'd like to do a structural edit first. I like to give, like, I like to give feedback and then let you work it out. But if we're running out of time or if some other circumstance, then like I will let that person know. I'm gonna do an aggressive rewrite on this. I apologize, but we really we need to get to the next stage. And so I'm gonna do this. And then I always give people the option when I send them an edit. Do you have questions? Do you have concerns? Let me know what they are. I think it's also um, about what stage you're at. What stage you're at and also like your intuition on what that reporter um, or producer, if you're on the same page about an edit, for example. So if you want to change something that you know that that person is going to be against, but it's one that you want to fight for, then go for the aggressive edit if that makes sense. If you, if you know that you're pretty much on the same page about something and you can kind of hand it to them to execute, then that's the time to do that. But it's, it's very gray. <laughs> Thanks, everyone, for coming.